everyone. Uh, we're just waiting for everyone to enter the Zoom webinar room. Um, as you are well know, I'm here with Ian Black, who will be speaking to us. Um, but before we get started, um, I'm just waiting for everyone to come in. So I'm going to take this time to let you know that um, we already have our next presentation uh, scheduled. That's Ahmed Khalidi speaking on the 12th of um, November. I will post that link in the chat box. We also have registration open for our Jerusalem conference, which Ian Black will be moder moder um, moderating one of our sessions, won't you, the Q&A, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. um, so that I will also post in the chat box, the link to register for our Jerusalem con conference, 27th of October, so that's this month now. We have sessions on um, history, religion, the contemporary um, situation, and um, all sorts. So do check that out. I'm still waiting for people to come in. You're all flooding in, which is great. And um, yeah, so I am going to uh, introduce you now to Ian. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Ian is the visiting senior fellow at the Middle East Center at LSC. Um, and he was previously the Middle East editor European editor, diplomatic editor, and Middle East correspondent at The Guardian. Um, you've uh, authored several books. We've got some book reviews of um, some articles, and we've got book review of your book on our website, The Balfour Project. So do check that out. And um, yeah, and I was having a lovely chat with you, wasn't I, just before we came live about um, how you got involved with The Balfour Project. And uh, you were telling me a lovely story about how you have met Vincent, that's Sir Vincent Dean, who's our chair of the Balfour Project, um, in the 90s when you were a diplomatic editor. So um, that's absolutely adorable. So thank you so much, Ian, uh, for agreeing to speak with us today. And thank you, everyone, for coming along. So I'm going to hand you over to Ian now. Um, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, um, uh, Diane. Um, so thank you also for inviting me to give this uh, give this talk. Uh, Vincent Fien is, is an old friend. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is based on the research for my uh, book, a uh, fairly recent book, Enemies and Neighbors, Arabs and Jews in Palestine and Israel, 1917 to 2017, was, which was published in November 17, 2017 on the centenary of the Balfour Declaration and uh, also to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the 1967 war. And to some extent uh, on my uh, doctoral thesis that I did at LSE amazingly uh, in the second half of the 1970s, a very long time ago. So I plan to speak for about 30 minutes, 35 minutes, and I'll be happy to answer any questions you may have. Um, so I wrote an introduction uh, as a blurb, if you like, and it went from the early days of Zionist settlement in Ottoman Palestine, it was clear that the project faced opposition from the native Arab majority. Hostility escalated, of course, with the start of British rule from 1917 and the violence that that engendered. Zionist leaders like uh, David Ben-Gurion admitted privately that a national confrontation was underway and inevitable. But official Zionist public messaging was that Arabs would benefit from the Jewish economic development of the country. By the end of the Palestinian Great Rebellion of 1936 to 1939, that was exposed as an illusion. The official Zionist view of the majority population of Palestine from the late 19th century onwards was that the natives had no distinct national identity and were no different from people in the other territories of the Ottoman Levant in line with the concept of Bilad Hashem, Greater Syria. If they were mentioned at all in early Zionist literature, they were normally referred to as Muslims or Christians rather than Arabs, and not least because the concept of Arab nationalism was then in its very early days. And of course, it would be boosted 
by the uh, events of the First World War. But from the beginning, the Zionist uh, movement, then still very much a minority in Eastern Europe, where the majority of the world's Jews then lived, was not unaware of the existence of other people in what they defined as Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. The slogan, a land without a people, for a people without a land, was actually coined by the Earl of Shaftesbury, a Christian Zionist. And that has often been misinterpreted to imply that there were no people in Palestine at all. But the slogan or phrase was a political argument that many people mistakenly took to be a demographic argument. What it meant was not that there were no people in Palestine, rather it meant that the people living in Palestine were not a people with a separate culture, history, and legitimate claim to uh, national self-determination. In other words, Palestine contained people, but not a people. Reality on the ground, whether in Jerusalem, Jaffa, Hebron, or Safed, or in the agricultural colonies that were created in the last two decades of the 19th century, meant that there was, meant that there was daily contact with Arabic-speaking natives, and some of them, of course, were native-born Jewish people. Now, in 1916, Chaim Weizmann, the first president of Israel and the power behind the Balfour Declaration, uh, wrote an 11-page introduction to a book published in Britain uh, called Zionism and the Jewish Future. He didn't, earn, uh, he didn't use the words Arab, Muslims, or Christians at all. Now, I know that I entitled this talk about uh, Zionist attitudes uh, during the British mandate. When I started thinking about actually doing it, I realized that I needed first to talk about what, what happened in the years before 1917. The mandate actually began formally in 1923 in order to provide the relevant background and the ability to make comparisons uh, between different periods. So here are some basic facts. In 1882, when the Zionist movement first began to make its mark, the population of Palestine, which it is important to stress, was not a single Ottoman administrative or political unit, was around 680,000. The Jewish population of 20 to 25,000, between three to 4% of the total, was concentrated in Jerusalem, Hebron, Tiberias and Suffolk. They were mostly poor, orthodox, and in Jerusalem, largely of Ashkenazi, i.e. European origin. That population was distinct uh, from Jews who later defined themselves as Zionists, but over time, of course, that distinction was eroded. Now, early Zionist settlers experienced problems over the demarcation of boundaries with former Arab tenants who um, had been dispossessed by the sale of lands they had previously worked, often for absentee landowners. Disputes also took place over harvesting rights. In 1886, for example, rioting erupted in the early uh, Zionist settlement of Petah Tikva after a Jewish farmer confiscated Arab-owned donkeys. Uh, by 1889, the 200 Jews of Zichon Yaakov, south of Haifa, had 1,200 agricultural workers serving them. In Rishon Lezion, uh, one of the first colonies, 40 Jewish families attracted nearly uh, 300 Arab families to work as laborers. The colonists were quick, quote, to reach for the whip and beat the offender for every transgression. Arab workers were easily available, cheap to employ, and far hardier than Jewish immigrants. The Arab laborer, laborer in the words of one Jewish observer, it, quote, is almost 
always a submissive servant who may be exploited without opposition and accepts lovingly the expressions of his master's power and dominion. Zionist memoirs recorded Arab fascination with modern agricultural machinery and laughter when the experienced colonists of uh, Rishon Lezion tried, quote, to coax camels into pulling carts like horses. Overall, the numbers of settlers are still very full, small, just over 2,000 by 1893. But local problems occasionally echoed more widely. In 1890, a group of Bedouin uh, protested to the Ottoman Sultan in, uh, uh, in Istanbul, Constantinople, as it was called then, that they had, uh, that they had been expelled from land that had been purchased for the Jewish settlement of Rehovot. Uh, nearby Gedera, founded by the Bilu uh, Zionist pioneering movement in 1884, was known for its particularly bad relations with its neighbors. Um, in 1891, for example, a group of Muslim notables sent a petition to Constantinople demanding an end to Jewish immigration and land purchases. Theodor Herzl, the Hungarian-born Viennese journalist who uh, became known as the father of political Zionism, paid his first and only visit to Palestine in 1898, trying but failing to secure the backing of the German Kaiser uh, for the recognition of Jewish aspirations in their ancient homeland. If you will it, as he famously wrote, it is no dream. In 1899, Yusuf uh, Diyar al-Khalidi, from a prominent Jerusalem family, wrote to Tzadok Khan, the chief rabbi of France. Quoting again, who can deny the rights of the Jews to Palestine? My God, historically, it is also your country. But he went on to, to, to suggest that since Palestine was already inhabited, Zionists should find another place for the implementation of their national and political goals. In the name of God, as he famously implored, let Palestine be left alone. But eight years before that, in 1891, a Ukrainian-born uh, writer called Asher Ginsberg, his pen name was, uh, was Ahad Ha'am, the Hebrew means one of the people, had written an article entitled The Truth from Eretz Israel, uh, following a trip to Palestine. We who live abroad, as he wrote in a key passage, are, are accustomed to believing that the Arabs are all wild desert people who, like donkeys, neither see nor understand what is happening around them. But this is a grave mistake. The Arabs, like all the Semites, the Arabs, sorry, like all the Semites, is sharp-minded and shrewd. All the townships of Syria and Eretz Israel are full of Arab merchants who know how to exploit the masses and keep track of everyone with whom they deal. The same as in Europe. The Arabs, especially the urban elite, see and understand what we are doing and what we wish to do on the land, but they keep quiet and pretend not to notice anything. For now, they do not consider our actions as presenting a future danger to them. But if the time comes that our people's life in Eretz Israel would develop to a point where we, we are taking their place, either slightly or, or significantly, the natives are not just going to, not going to just step aside so easily. Now, Ahad Ha'am's article is often quoted because it provided the first serious recognition that relations with the Arabs would be one of the Zionist project's hardest test. Hardest test. But there's a risk with hindsight, 
of endowing his comments with more significance uh, than they had at the time. The article was criticized when it, when it appeared, not so much because of his brief comments about Arabs, but because uh, of his attacks on Jewish, quote, charlatans, unquote, who had been promoting the Holy Land as a new California with an easy life, um, producing a motley mixture of gold diggers and indigent, indigent exiles. Arabs simply did not loom as large for the Zionists in those early years as they would do only a decade or two later. But still, Arab hostility was becoming harder to ignore by the turn of the 20th century. The eviction of, of peasants from the land purchased in Galilee by the Jewish Colonization Association led to attacks on Jewish uh, surveyors. An Arab official in Tiberias ignored the, uh, uh, the orders of his Turkish superior in Beirut and opposed the transaction against a background of um, mounting or uh, Arab opposition to the Ottoman authorities. By 1904, 10 years before the First World War, some 5,500 settlers, Jewish settlers, were living in 25 agricultural colonies in three blocks in eastern Upper Galilee, south of Haifa, and southeast of Jaffa. That year, the Ottoman authorities forbade uh, the sale of land to foreign Jews. In Zionist speeches and discussions, and I'm quoting here, the Arabs, their presence, and their settlement in Palestine are belittled and nullified as if they did not exist, according to one Jewish intellectual in 1905. The Arabs, and I'm continuing quoting here, were viewed as one more of the many misfortunes present in Palestine. Like the Ottoman authorities, the climate, difficulties of adjustment, no greater or smaller than other uh, troubles the settlers had to grapple with. Now in 1905, at the Zionist Congress in Basel, the Odessa-born educationalist called Yitzhak Epstein returned to and sharpened the point that had, that had been made by Ahad Ha'am in 1891, 14 years earlier. Now, Epstein belonged to a movement called Chovavetzion, the Lovers of Zion. He'd witnessed the purchase of the lands uh, close to the border between Palestine and Lebanon, the future border, of course, because no such border existed in those days, uh, near, uh, near um, the current uh, uh, Roshpina and Matula in Israel from absentee landlords. Um, and he, he, um, he remembered clearly the anger of the dispossessed farmers from the Druze uh, community. The lament of Arab women still rings in my ears, he wrote. The men rode on donkeys and the women followed them weeping bitterly and the valley was filled with their lamentation. As they went, they stopped to kiss the stones and the earth. In our lovely country, there exists an entire people who have held it for centuries and to whom it would never occur to leave. The time has come to dispel the misconception among Zionists that land in Palestine lies uncultivated for lack of working hands or the laziness of the local residents. There are no deserted fields. Now Epstein clearly ahead of his time warned that relations with the Arabs were the unseen question that the Zionist movement had failed to address. Only by taking care not to dispossess Arab farmers and generally sharing the benefits of Zionist 
progress could their enmity, enmity be avoided. But his argument attracted little response. Uh, the same year uh, Epstein's speech was published, uh, uh, an Ottoman official complained about the growing president, uh, presence of quote-unquote foreign Jews in Jaffa where immigrants disembarked. Uh, often, um, they were often shocked by their raucous reception. You must tell the passengers not to be impatient, not to be in a hurry to get off the ship, and not to be overawed by the shouts and cries of the Arab sailors. Uh, a Zionist official urged a colleague who arranged uh, steamship voyages from Odessa, the port on the Black Sea. Teach the travelers to Palestine the importance of the Arabic words, obviously, shway shway, slowly, slowly, and tell them that if they say this to the Arabs suddenly appearing on the ship, they will calm down a bit and not shout yalla yalla, hurry hurry, a cry that has something contemptuous about it. In March 1908, fighting broke out in the port city, Jaffa, between young Muslims and Jews. The violence was blamed by the British consul on resentment of the Jewish population. The growth of prostitution and alcohol consumption uh, caused serious problems. Arabs warned the Jewish writer, quote, regard all the Muscovite women as cheap and promiscuous and behave with a sexual vulgarity that they would never dare to do in the case of Sephardi uh, Oriental Jewish women and still less of uh, German or English Christian women. In 1909, an Ottoman deputy demanded that the port be closed to Jewish immigrants. Now, decades of research, including my own at LSE on the 1930s, have contradicted the widespread uh, assumption of Zionist ignorance of Arab hostility. Palestine Jews, known as the Yishuv, community is the word in Hebrew, uh, were acutely aware of a real gap uh, separating the basic principles of Jews and Arabs uh, in Palestine, according to one study. And that, of course, began, British rule uh, began shortly after the Balfour Declaration of November the 2nd, 1917, and the entry of General Edmund Allenby into Jerusalem just over a month later. I'm sure uh, this audience is familiar with the diplomatic background to that, contradictory promises, the sense of Arab anger, uh, and of course a historic achievement for the Zionist movement. Uh, less than 30 years after it was founded uh, by having won a pro promise to view with favor the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people from the most powerful country on earth. In terms of attitudes to Arabs, uh, another landmark post-war moment is a statement by David Ben-Gurion, the Labour Zionist leader and of course future Israeli Prime Minister, who had arrived in Palestine from his native Poland in 1906 and had the same uh, negative uh, reaction to Jaffa uh, as I described a few minutes ago. His words came after the Versailles Peace Conference in the summer of um, 1919. He declared to a closed session of colleagues, quote, everybody sees a difficulty in the question of relations between Arabs and Jews, Ben-Gurion said, but not everybody sees that there is no solution to this question. No solution. There is a gulf and nothing can fill this gulf. It is not possible to resolve the conflict between Jewish and Arab interests by sophistry. I do not know what Arab will agree that Palestine should belong to the Jews, even if the Jews learn Arabic. And we must recognize this situation. If we do not 
acknowledge this and try to come up with remedies, then we risk demoralization. We as a nation want this country to be ours. The Arabs as a nation want this country to be theirs. Other participants in that 1919 debate offered different views, including a man called Chaim Margalit Kalvariski, who worked on relations with Palestinian Arab individuals and groups, including financing and bribing them. But the majority agreed with Ben Gurion. In early 1920, an English language publication, the Zionist Review, published an article addressing exactly this issue. It said that, quote, the landowning and commercial classes among the Palestinian Arabs are genuinely afraid that the Zionist plan involves their land being expropriated and ousted from taking any part in the industrial and commercial development of the country. They're opposed, and justifiably opposed, to an exclusive Jewish domination, either in the political or in the economic sphere. And they are bound to oppose Zionism so long as they think that such domination is among the aims of Zionism. But it would be a great mistake for Zionists to conclude that this opposition is irremovable and to base their policy on that hypothesis. That was, in my view, an optimistic conclusion and arguably a false one. It was already clear um, in 1920 that the Arabs had rejected the Balfour Declaration along with Jewish immigration and land sales, even if that genuinely meant greater prosperity for all, uh, and not just for the individuals who sold, uh, who sold land at inflated prices. The, the, that Zionist promise of prosperity for all was unconvincing, however, and not least because of the land question. In Ottoman times, tenants had not been evicted when land ownership changed, but simply answered to a new landlord. Now, in the, in, in the, in the wake of the second wave of Zionist immigration, known as Aliyah in Hebrew, from 1904 to 1914, they were evicted because of the increasingly uh, uh, prevalent principle of Hebrew labor. And what was described as that incomprehensible innovation naturally fueled fears about the future. At best, as Zionists continued to argue, relations with the Arabs of Palestine would improve as the Jewish presence became stronger and generated economic growth and employment opportunities. If relations did not improve, then so be it. And so, of course, it was. From 1920 onwards, there began a series of events that widened the gap between the two communities as the number of Jewish immigrants increased slowly but steadily. In 1922, the British census, a British census showed that Palestine's Jewish population was about 84,000. By 1931, it had more than doubled to 175,000. In April 1920, there took place disturbances in Jerusalem that were known as the Nebi, uh, Nebi Musa riots. Now, only five Jews and four Arabs were killed, though several hundred were injured, but it was a warning sign of what was to come. And one result was that the uh, Haganah, the Jewish Defense Organization, was created uh, in the wake of uh, those disturbances. In May 1920, an official Zionist document laid out a plan for countering op Arab opposition. It proposed cultivating individuals, building alliances with 
Bedouin uh, emirs and sheikh, uh, sheikhs both in Transjordan and southern Palestine, purchases of Arab newspapers and promoting friendly relations with Arabs and provoking tensions between uh, the Muslim majority and Christians. But this plan was based on the presumption that there was no authentic Arab national movement in Palestine. According to the Israeli scholar, an important uh, scholar, uh, Hillel Cohen. This was true to a certain extent, he writes, but those who promoted it ignored the process taking place before their eyes. The plan provided the framework for setting up two organizations for Arab collaborators, the Muslim national associations and the farmers' parties. The following year, May 1921, saw a significant illustration, uh, escalation, uh, sorry, uh, escalation with what were known as the Jaffa riots, although they extended far beyond the port city. In total, 47 Jews and 48 Arabs were killed. The wounded uh, were far greater. The outbreak of violence was followed by the report of the British Haycraft Commission, which quoted Jewish witnesses as saying that Zionism has nothing to do with the anti-Jewish feeling manifested in the Jaffa disturbances. In July 1921, Hassan Shukri, the mayor of Haifa and president of the Muslim National Associations, which we just referred to, uh, sent a telegram to the British government in response to the delegation of Palestinian Arabs who had traveled to London to provide, try to prevent the implement, implementation of the Balfour Declaration. Shukri wrote, and it was clearly dictated by his uh, uh, Zionist uh, uh, paymasters, we are certain that without Jewish immigration and financial assistance, there will be no future development of our country, as may be judged from the fact that the towns inhabited in part by Jews such as Jerusalem, Jaffa, Haifa, and Tiberias are making steady progress, while Nablus, uh, Acre, and Nazareth, where no Jews are reside, uh, where no Jews reside, are steadily declining. There then followed the few years of calm to the extent that in around 1923-1924 overt Arab hostility to the mandate of the Zionist enterprise appeared to be on the wane. But at the time there was another important statement. This one was made by Vladimir Jabotinsky, the founder of the Zionist revisionist movement, which was the ideological predecessor, of course, of what became um, Israel's Likud party. Jabotinsky wrote his essay after Winston Churchill, then the colonial secretary, prohibited Zionist settlement in Transjordan. Jabotinsky argued that the Palestinian Arabs would not agree to a Jewish majority in Palestine and that Zionist colonization must either stop or else proceed regardless of the native population, which means that it can proceed and develop only under the protection of power that is in, independent of the native, uh, the native population behind an iron wall which the native population cannot breach. Um, Jabotinsky's concept of the iron wall, the, the title of an important book by Abi Schlein, has often been cited as a brutally frank and realistic admission of how to achieve a Zionist goals compared to the lip service of coexistence plus economic uh, development paid by a labor movement and leaders such as Ben-Gurion, who, as we have heard, held different views uh, privately. The, in 1924, the uh, Ahdot Avodah, that's the forerunner of the, uh, of the uh, Israeli Labor Party, uh, held a convention 
and it concluded that the solution of what it defined as the Arab question lay in the joint organization of Jewish and Arab workers, and that there was no Arab national movement worthy of the name. It was also agreed, however, that at that stage of the development of the Jewish national home, a political agreement with the Arabs of Palestine was neither practical nor desirable. 1929 was another landmark with the worst violence yet erupting in Jerusalem, Hebron, and Suffolk. It has been described as the year zero of the conflict, although the evidence was already there, in my view, uh, of an accelerating confrontation among uh, national, along national lines. One effect of I'm just uh, skipping ahead here because I'm running out of time. Okay, so occasionally more critical verse, uh, voices were heard. Hans Cohen, uh, K-O-H-N, was a supporter of the Dovish group called Brit Shalom, which means covenant uh, of peace in Hebrew, which promoted uh, a binational state um, who unusually, though appropriately, described the, uh, he was a future leading scholar of nationalism. That's the uh, relevance of his remarks. He described the um, Zionist Arab confrontation against the wider background of resistance to colonialism elsewhere. I cannot con concur, he wrote, with official Zionist policy when the Arab national movement is being portrayed as the wanton agitation of a few big landowners. I know that frequently the most reactionary imperialist press in England and France portrays the national movement in India, Egypt, and China in a similar fashion. In short, wherever the national movements of oppressed peoples threaten the interests of the colonial power. I know how false and hypocritical this portrayal is. We pretend, we pretend to be innocent victims. Of course, the Arabs attacked us in August, that's 1929. Since they have no armies, they could not obey the rules of war. They perpetrated all the barbaric acts that are characteristics of the colonial re revolt. But we're obliged to look into the deeper cause of this revolt. We have been in Palestine for 12 years. He clearly meant since the Balfour Declaration uh, in 1917, without having even once made a serious attempt at seeking through negotiations the consent of the indigenous people. We have been relying exclusively upon Britain's military might. We have set ourselves goals which by their very nature had to lead to a conflict with the Arabs. We ought to have recognized that these would be the just cause of a national uprising against us. We pretended that the Arabs did not exist. Judah Magnus, the American reform rabbi and pacifist who became the first chancellor of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, uh, had drawn similar conclusions in a controversial address at the, around the same time during which he was heckled uh, by his students. If we cannot find ways of peace and understanding, if the only way of establishing the Jewish national home is upon the bayonets of some empire, our whole enterprise is not worthwhile. And it is better that the eternal people that has outlived many a mighty empire should possess its soul in patience and plan and wait. But these, of course, were the arguments of a tiny Jewish minority with very little ability to influence the hardening mood amongst uh, the um, Jewish population in Palestine and the Zionist movement more generally in the wake of the 1929 bloodshed. Brit Shalom ceased to exist in uh, 1933, uh, due to the desertion of many members and a chronic lack of funds. And despite distancing themselves from 
Jabotinsky's uh, views, the Yishuv and its leadership, the Jewish community and its leadership, began to internalize the logic underpinning his approach. The consensus in favor of the iron wall philosophy grew stronger after 1929 and the issuance by Britain of the Passfield White Paper in 1930, which imposed limits um, on uh, Jewish immigration. As a result, pessimism grew about the future of the Zionist enterprise and Arab opposition to it. Chaim Alozrov took over the Jewish agency's political department in 1931, and he uh, wrote the following year, 1932, a famous letter which often described as prophetic to Chaim Weizmann. Alozrov's conclusion was that Zionism, and I'm quoting here, cannot in the given circumstances be turned into reality without a transition period of the organized revolutionary rule of the Jewish mi minority in which the Jews would develop the country, save as many Jews as possible as the approaching world war and emerging Arab nationalism might otherwise prevent the ultimate realization of Zionism. Uh, Weizmann famously did not answer uh, that letter. It was around this time that the Zionists abandoned the strategy of establishing or encouraging Arab organizations designed to construct an alternative leadership. That policy was clearly based on false assumptions that the majority Arab population had no genuine national sentiments. It was also wrong to believe that conflicting or different interests between urban and rural Arabs, Afendis uh, versus Falahim, as well as Christians and Muslims could be exploited to uh, the benefit of the Zionists. That didn't mean that all Arabs supported uh, the extremist leader Hadj Amin al-Husseini or viewed selling land to Jews a, as an act of treachery. Plenty of them did just that and Palestinians uh, far outnumbered absentee uh, wealthy Lebanese landlords. But it did mean and I'm quoting here again from Hillel Cohen, that the fear of takeover by the Zionists rendered overt political alliance unacceptable for the majority of the Palestinian population. Uh, in 1935, Jewish immigration largely from Germany and elsewhere in Europe had peaked at uh, 62,000. That was the year before another landmark event, the Arab general strike of April 1936 and the fully fledged rebellion that followed it uh, from October 1937. The strike and violence created yet another British inquiry, the Peel Commission. Uh, it recommended in July 1937 the Palestine problem be uh, resolved by the creation of separate uh, and independent Jewish and Arab states in the area of the mandate. The Zionist movement of Palestine's Jews were again concerned to portray events as the result of terror, agitation and corruption on the part of the Arab leadership, largely foreign Arabs and not uh, the expression of mass popular sentiment. Um, okay, I'm just zooming ahead here a little bit. Uh, Ben-Gurion also challenged fellow Zionists to argue that uh, there had not been an Arab uprising. His colleague, uh, Moshe Shertok, later Charette, uh, the head of the political department of the Jewish agency was struck by the mass popular character of the disturbances and the self-discipline uh, displayed by the strikers. The participation of Arab women he noted was an entirely new phenomenon which bore um, eloquent witness to the depth of national feeling. Um, Palestinian witnesses to the 1937 Peel Commission flatly contradicted the argument that it was all about outside intervention and Jewish driven uh, economic development. You say my house has been enriched by the strangers who have entered it, said one witness but it is my house and I did not invite the strangers in or ask them to enrich it. But I do not care how poor 
or bare it is if only I am master in it. Another effect of the rebellion was to boost Zionist cooperation with British intelligence and security designed to crush uh, the Arab opposition. That was the period of Ord Wingate and his notorious special uh, night squads. The British question in this period had replaced the Arab question. In the big picture, the event of the, the effect of the Arab rebellion was to weaken the Palestinians, pave the way for the Nakba, the catastrophe of 1948. An estimated 5,000 Palestinians were killed in violence in the three years of the rebellion, but up to one third were killed by rebels themselves. Uh, Jewish uh, casualties were around 500. The rebellion has produced a vast literature over the years, but one of the finest was published last year uh, by Matthew Hughes. It's called, uh, the title is British, Britain's Pacification of Palestine, the British Army, the Colonial State, and the Arab Revolt, 1936 to 39. Leadership was divided, of course, between the Hussainis and the Nashashibis, and those divisions were exploited by the Jews and the British. In May 1939, the British issued their white paper restricting British emigration and land sales. That marked the end of Britain's 22-year um, pro-Zionist policy. By then, uh, Palestine's demographic, demographic reality had changed considerably. The Jewish population had nearly doubled in the preceding six years, 234,000. To 445,000 by 1939. That had, that had risen from 21% of the total population to 30%. And it wasn't just about demography. It was by the outbreak of the Second World War, Arabs and Jews lived far more separately than they had done before, continuing in a trend, a, a trend that had begun in 1921 uh, and accelerated after 1929. Um, the Palestinian leadership rejected the white paper um, of 1939, although it was a significant retreat uh, from British support for the Zionist enterprise. Given the rise of Hitler and what was already happening in Europe, it was obviously a tragic moment for the Jews. Ben-Gurion famously pledged, uh, quoting again, to fight the white paper as if there were no war and to fight the war as if there were no white paper. The Zionist movement, the Shuv, uh, finally abandoned the illusion that it could come uh, to any kind of agreement with the Arabs of Palestine. And no one uh, doubted, of course, that renewed conflict uh, laid, lay ahead. I want to end on a, uh, on a sad but relevant note. I, I don't know how many of you have heard of uh, Meron Benvenisti. He was one of the most brilliant, original, and inevitably controversial analysts of the Israel-Palestine conflict. He died last month, uh, sadly. Um, and in 2012, he gave an interview to the uh, liberal uh, Israeli paper Haaretz <clears throat> on the occasion of the publication of his uh, autobiography, autobiography in Hebrew. And Meron was talking about issues that were relevant at that time and also in the current uh, bleak reality of the conflict. But I'm sure you will recognize some of the elements that I have talked about. And I'm quoting from the interview, Zionism was not born in sin, but in <clears throat> illusion. The illusion was that we're not we are coming to a land in which there are no Arabs. And when we figured it out, we pulverized the country's Arabs into five different groups. The Arabs of Israel, the Arabs of Gaza, the Arabs of the West Bank, the Arabs of Jerusalem, and the refugee Arabs. We succeeded in creating a divide and rule system that made it possible <coughs> for us to rule them and to preserve hegemonic power 
between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. Thank you. I finished. Well, Ian, sorry, I nearly missed my cue because I was taking notes. That was um, so interesting. And um, <coughs> thank you for that. We've had so many questions come in. Um, so I was just sorting them out according, um, trying to batch them uh, because we had a couple that were on um, in advance and through the chat that have been on um, very similar topics. So um, quite a few of our audience has expressed um, disappointment, let's say, in the British media and its reporting of the situation, feeling that it's biased and so forth. Um, but I want to ask you a question based on all of those questions that have come in. I want to ask you, what can we do um, to keep this issue in the media? If we feel like it's unbiased, how can we draw attention either to um, publications or to journalists? What can we do? to try to make it, um, you know, the publications more balanced? Well, um, gosh, I worked for 36 years for one, uh, uh, one publication, The Guardian. And of course, um, maybe I should uh, make a few introductory remarks. I mean, uh, everybody who's watching this knows that this is, uh, uh, arguably the most uh, toxic and divisive issue on the planet. Uh, so there are always going to be complaints from uh, either side uh, of, uh, of bias and downplaying uh, 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 the, um, the uh, arguments uh, in support of, uh, of one side or the other. Uh, so I worked for The Guardian for many years. Uh, it was always a toxic and divisive issue. I think that uh, over the years we did it pretty well. Uh, but of course that can't convince uh, everybody. Uh, obviously there are uh, exceptions to this rule. Um, um, the... Um, um, it's such a big topic, isn't it? It's it's, um, it's quite hard to know how to how to tackle it. Um, look, the issue isn't going to go away. Um, you know, the the most important story in the last few weeks, as I'm sure you're perfectly well aware, uh, is of the uh, historic, uh, maybe in inverted commas, yani, Arabic. Um, um, between Israel and the UAE and uh, Bahrain. Uh, I think it's got a lot of attention and indeed critical attention too, certainly from uh, well, my old, uh, my old uh, uh, employers. Uh, uh, I mean, I, you know, what it's worth, and, you know, I wrote a, 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 a piece for my uh, for the Guardian, saying that uh, the um, the uh, agreement, the Ab Abraham Accords, brokered by Donald Trump, uh, of course in his own uh, uh, self-interest, uh, made the prospect of a two-state solution to the conflict even more remote than it was. Um, I'm I, I think that that was a widely held view, uh, but. Of course, I'm up for hearing uh, specific uh, uh, questions or, or complaints uh, about uh, the coverage. Um, again, I mean, this conflict of all the conflicts on the planet is famously toxic and divisive. And uh, I, 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 my view is that the media is doing okay. Well, obviously, with, with certain exceptions, but. Uh, but I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, thank you so much for that. Well, um, I would just like to take a moment to thank everyone for the donations that have come in. Um, we really appreciate it. You know, we've been, um, since COVID, we've been hosting these online lectures um, in, instead of doing being able to do in-person events. Um, 
and we've managed to host uh, monthly events and hope that you have all been finding it very interesting. So we really appreciate your support in the form of donations because it helps us keep going. So thank you for the, the people that have donated already and um, we really appreciate that. Um, so I had a question come in in advance from Rod Cox, who's here. Um, and um, it's about Jenny Tong's question in the House of Lords. And it's quite exciting because we have Jenny here um, in the audience as well. So hello, Jenny. Um, thank you for asking our question. <laughs> um, the question was about the Balfour Declaration, which is obviously where the name of the Balfour Project comes from. Um, and um, the Balfour Declaration, as most of us are familiar, states that nothing should be done to prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Um, Jenny asked um, about this in the House of Lords and Lord Ahmed, um, his response was that Israel is a thriving democracy with a long-standing commitment to equality for all. Um, so I guess we just want to ask um, your thoughts on that, as does Jenny, because she's just said hello everyone in the chat. So. Everyone say hello to Sunny. <laughs> um, thriving democracy with equality for all. I mean, you know, it's clearly not true, is it? Um, the uh, the um, the state of Israel within its 1967 borders contains uh, uh, also contains uh, an Arab uh, minority of uh, I, I think 20 percent. 21% possibly, uh, and um, uh, they are represented in the uh, Knesset, Israel's parliament, but the nation state law of 2018 uh, obviously was correctly interpreted as uh, an act of uh, prejudice against them. It also uh, um, downgraded the official status of the Arabic uh, language. Uh, the issue is, uh, the larger issue is the continuing occupation uh, and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the phrase thriving democracy with equality clearly does not apply uh, to that. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, thank you for that. So um, I've got a question here from Johnny Risk. Um, Zionism emerged in an age when colonialism was still an accepted form of international relations. Um, why do you think it is that countries that have, which have themselves renounced their own colonial past, have continued to support the Zionist colonialization projects? Um, Well, I mean, the fact is that the state of Israel is uh, a, a reality that can't be, whatever your view uh, of it, can't be, uh, uh, can't be wished away. Uh, so the, there are two peoples who live in this holy land and uh, they have to find a way to come to terms with each other. Uh, there's no question about that. Neither side is going to go away and uh, uh, they have to uh, work it out. Uh, the problem is the, the, this is uh, an exceptionally asymmetrical uh, conflict uh, w in which one side is far stronger and enjoys far more support than the other. Um, but it's in the interests of both sides, of course, to uh, reach an agreement and the, the current you know, the existing model of a two-state solution, uh, which dates back uh, to the Peel Commission recommendation of 1937, uh, I do not believe that there's any substitute uh, for that. But of course, um, it's never seemed further away than uh, it is right now. Uh, but I don't believe myself uh, that there is any alternative to that. Well, um, we're coming up to the end of time, Ian. Thank you so much for that. Um, loads of people thanking you in the chat, which, by the way, I always um, tell my speakers not to look at the chat because it's distracting. So, um, but I do relay all the comments to the speaker um, 
after the event. So I will be passing all of your comments on to Ian later. So thank you so much for all of your questions, your positive responses. Um, we've had so many questions that we're just never going to get through all of them um, in the time that we have. Um, but I'm going to take one from your longtime buddy, Vincent Fien. Um, <laughs> so how would you summarize the attitude of the British authorities in the face of the Gulf Ben Gurion describes? And was there a gap between London's attitude and that of the local British administrators? That's, a, that's a, a question that only Vincent could have asked. Um, um, I think towards the end of the mandate, by, you know, in the course of 1947, there was, um, there was a sense that in the British government, both in London and in Jerusalem, that the mandate was going to come to an end, and it wasn't going to end well. Um, and th that was, the, of course, the British motive in handing over uh, the, the end of the mandate to the, um, to the United Nations. Um, there was clearly opposition to both in from government house in Jerusalem uh, to the terms of the mandate but of course the British were overtaken by events if you like um, you know when the Balfour Declaration was issued in the, on November the 2nd 1917 um, what happened to the Jews of Europe uh, during the Second World War was not possible to imagine. So in 1942, when the, uh, the dimensions of the Holocaust being carried out by the Nazis uh, was um, became, becoming apparent, um, in May of that year, the, the Zionist Congress uh, convened in a, a hotel a hotel in uh, New York called the uh, Biltmore. And the name of the hotel doesn't matter, but the, the, uh, the, that became ad attached to the program that was unveiled uh, on that occasion. And the Biltmore program uh, ended uh, any lack of clarity about the goals of the Zionist movement. The British had committed to a Jewish national home in Palestine, and we've heard the qualifications that were issued uh, in that, uh, in that uh, famous 67-word document. Uh, but in May 1942, uh, the Zionist Congress, the Biltmore Hotel in New York, uh, demanded a Jewish commonwealth, which basically meant a state. The moment that happened, I think that the numbers of Jewish immigrants, the size of the Jewish community in Palestine, uh, meant that uh, that was uh, that was likely to be uh, the uh, be seen as the achievable goal. And you know, all bets were off. Britain had uh, been through the Second World War; it had uh, just given up the jewel in the crown of the of its empire in India, and it wanted to cut its losses. But it does uh, bear a historic responsibility uh, for the, um, the creation of uh, what remains one of the world's most intractable uh, conflicts. And it's good that the Balfour uh, Project is trying to uh, increase knowledge uh, and awareness of that. Thank you so much, Ian. Um, if you have enjoyed this talk. We will be putting it on the website um, very shortly, along with the transcript. Um, the links that I've been sharing in the chat will be shared um, over email. So if you've signed up to our mailing list, you'll get them. If not, head over to our website, bell4project.org, and um, join our mailing list. And um, if you come to our upcoming events, 
such as our, um, our conference. Um, if you come to our conference on Jerusalem on the 27th of October, you get to see Ian again as he's moderating the Q&A session at the, um, at the end of the conference. It's an all day free conference, so please do have a look at that. We've got some amazing speakers lined up um, on topics of religion, history, politics, the current situation, um, and on and on and on. So hopefully you can all join us there. Um, Ian, thank you again so much for taking the time to come speak to us all today. Um, thank you everyone who's come along to listen. You've been fantastic. As I said in the chat, it's the fact that we have this amazing, amazing turnout every single time that we continue um, hosting these monthly talks. So thank you for joining us. And um, we hope you have a lovely evening. Ian, thank you.